Uh, so last week, as I said, if you were here, you'll remember we read most of what we read today, uh, as well as the beginning of chapter 5, the bit that goes before it. Uh, we saw that the repeated theme and command was to show honour, uh, as in uh, show respect uh, and care for one another in the church. And Paul lays out some principles to guide that. We should show honour according to age, vulnerability and need, uh, family, spiritual office uh, and what I've called inherited authority. Last week uh, we got through three of those um, and, uh, and uh, we're going to cover those bottom two today. Um, I would suggest, though, that the summary of all of these seems to lie somewhere in chapter 6, verse 1. When talking to slaves, Paul says uh, that they should honour their masters so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. This principle of honour and respect where it's due seems to be so fundamental to what it means to be a Christian that if people look on and see a Christian community acting with honour and respect, then they will see something of what it means uh, to be a Christian, something of God's own nature in that. And so I am going to talk about slavery, which is the context, uh, the immediate context of this verse, uh, when we come to that point. But let's at least say this, uh, and it's amplified, if anything, by this context of slavery... Christians should be characterised by respect. Uh, we should be characterised by the respect that we show to others. Uh, and if we do this, we will gain the respect of others. And gaining the respect of our community is, is important, according to this. It is important what others think. It's not ultimate. What's ultimate is what God thinks, what he makes of you, uh, his love for you. But it is important what other people see in us and what, they, what conclusions they derive from that. And so we should act in such a way that people see what is good and, uh, and they have good feelings toward us and God's people and then by extension God himself. To the extent that we don't do this, we run the reasonable risk of being reviled uh, or despised by the world. And one of the paradoxes of Christianity uh, is that we call Jesus our Lord and we pledge allegiance to him alone and above all else. But in its biblical outworking, the, this shouldn't lead to arrogance uh, or, and it shouldn't diminish our duty to other structures uh, and authorities. In fact, under Christ, our sense of obligation to others, even to obey and submit to others, is heightened in almost every respect. Our duty to God actually heightens our duty to others rather than diminishes it. That is the way these principles flow down through Scripture. You might think that if God is boss, He is our Lord and King, then that means we don't need to listen to the other voices, we just follow Him alone. But actually the order that He directs, more often than not, is that as we obey Him, we obey and honour the authorities beneath Him. Even when it's hard. Uh, Christians and Christianity have uh, a long and impressive legacy of fearlessly standing up against power and corruption, uh, a legacy of being unafraid of the consequences when we do that. Uh, and oftentimes this has been good and godly, but if we carefully follow the Bible's teaching, uh, this will be the exception rather than the rule. 
Uh, in times of widespread civil disobedience, it should rarely be Christians leading the charge. Uh, in times of workplace revolt, it should rarely be Christians agitating for it. Uh, the fact that we belong to Christ means that we can not only uh, disobey others without fear, and sometimes we should, but perhaps even more radically, the fact that we belong to Christ means that we can even obey others without fear. We can fearlessly submit to authority, knowing that we uh, are answerable to God at the end. And others can do to us what they may, but we are secure in Christ. Uh, we can and should even submit to godless authorities in the knowledge and security that our soul belongs to God. Having said that, the first point uh, we come to this morning is the expectation that the church would be marked by internal respect as we honour those with spiritual authority and those who occupy church offices. Uh, so spiritual office and debt. I don't think the word debt is the, is the best or maybe even the right word there. I, I, I'll explain why I've put it there in a little bit. But Paul says basically three things uh, in this point. He says uh, that we should honour elders who rule and labour in preaching and teaching. Uh, he says even that we should pay them appropriately. Uh, and he does say that we should hold them accountable. Uh, so in verse 17, he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. What does he mean by honour? Uh, and what does he mean uh, by double honour? Well, honour means what you think it means. Uh, it means respect and obedience. Uh, it means uh, generous listening. It means speaking well to a person and speaking well of a person. Uh, in the immediate context, uh, Paul uses the same word for how we should treat elders, uh, that we should honour elders and we should honour widows, he actually said in verse 3, and we should honour uh, masters of slaves in chapter 6, verse 1. In the case of widows, the duty to honour them extends to providing them financial aid. That's pretty obvious as, as we follow that through as we did last week. And Paul makes that same point in the case of elders. In verse 18, he makes a couple of agricultural points, uh, which are from the world of agriculture, also from the Old Testament, from the book of Deuteronomy, chapters uh, 24 and 25. The first illustration is a really attractive one uh, when it's applied to your spiritual leaders. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Uh, and then uh, the next one, the labourer deserves his wages. These are in some respects, crass, very earthy sort of illustrations that, that make a very basic fundamental point. The principle is clear that from the greatest to the least, we ought to make payment uh, for those who work for us, even the animals. And then Paul seems to run it the other way too. If we, need to, if we must pay uh, and acknowledge the, the labours of even our beasts of burden, how much more should you provide for those to whom you owe a spiritual Debt, which is why I use the word debt, um, not, uh, not people in spiritual office who have debt um, or, uh, or anything like that. But because it, it says in there in um, verse 17, um, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour. And I don't take that to mean mainly a, a comment on their skill that we should recognise skill, although to some extent we should, but that we should acknowledge uh, what, we, what we owe a person, our gratitude, uh, and debt is another probably inferior word for that. 
But the principle is clear that, that we should pay. Uh, I think that's the meaning of double honour as well. Uh, that if you recognise the, sp- the significance of spiritual food, then you will recognise the spiritual labour of those who feed you uh, with high or double honour. Now, Paul himself is a pretty funny example of this principle because he himself refused to receive income for his spiritual labours. He preferred instead to gain respect by working with his hands and doing the work of teaching in his own time. Uh, He didn't uh, want to uh, feel like he was bought by people or or have people feel like they despised him in any sense uh, or owned him in any sense uh, because of the money they'd given him. He preferred to be a free agent. And that's a good principle too, a really good one. But even when he talks about his own principles that he applies to himself, he acknowledges that uh, the broader principle ought to be a willingness to supply uh, for those who work for us. Uh, And here he says to the church that you should pay those who do spiritual labour on your behalf. I do like when, um, when applying a passage of scripture, I like to be able to tell you not just what you must do, but what you're already doing. Um, so here goes. This is how uh, the Presbyterian Church of Queensland and how you yourselves are applying this. Um, uh, the Presbyterian Church of Queensland has a, has a principle that it is good to have uh, a body of elders uh, who are a mixture of, uh, of volunteers and someone who uh, is working, giving their full time and attention to the church. And in that scenario, it's good to, have, uh, to make payment for that person. Uh, the Presbyterian Church of Queensland has a committee of people who sit down and do, crunch some numbers and do some sums and say, this is a minimum that you ought to pay uh, a minister in your charge. Um, and that's what our church pays. And I will say on my own behalf that I feel like, uh, particularly for our needs, the minimum is more than sufficient. It's quite good, actually. Um, But there are other churches where, because of different scenarios and circumstances, the congregation can choose to pay more, and that might be their principle of of the double honour thing. Um, I'm not asking for a pay rise. I don't think we need it. Um, um, Now, verses 19 to 22 uh, in this uh, talk... um, they're not up here, but uh, it goes a little bit further. It says that uh, our honour for towards spiritual leaders uh, ought to involve us keeping them accountable and applying principles of justice. So our leaders, spiritual leaders, are not above rebuke. Uh, they are not above rebuke. But if, as a church, you've done your due diligence in appointing only worthy recipients, and those principles are in chapter 2, then you should also exercise care when you entertain any accusations against your leaders or elders. So it says in verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now this is a general principle uh, in scripture as well, uh, that uh, of justice, so that people can't become victims just of slander uh, or wickedness or lies. Uh, but that if you're hearing repeated things along the same lines, uh, and more than one person is saying this stuff, then uh, then it, it ought to be pursued. Uh, and then uh, I, I feel like we've sort of addressed some of that stuff already uh, in the fact that at, at the, in those scenarios, then a leader in the church ought to be held to account, uh, perhaps even dismissed, perhaps even in Paul's words, um, handed over to Satan uh, as, they're, uh, as they're dismissed um, in no uncertain terms, so that they are absolutely clear that I am in the wrong uh, and I am welcome back, uh, but only if I'm able to correct my ways and repent of my sins. 
Um, so this, um, uh, so this, I would say though, th- this idea about keeping spiritual leaders accountable, this would apply to charges of gross misconduct, and they happen. Uh, this principle would also have to apply for lesser things too. So I'll just say this: don't be too quick to label a minister or elder as something like a false teacher uh, because of one or two things uh, that could easily be taken out of context. Seek instead to understand them. Give them some credit, not not a blank check, but some credit. Don't slander or gossip about church leaders. Raise your concerns, if you have a relationship, raise your concerns directly with them. Or, if that's too hard, raise any concerns you might have uh, respectfully and through a trusted friend. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about church membership. I didn't tell you at the start that I was going to talk about this and I've even shuffled the order as we've gone. But church membership, I'm going to talk about. Because it sort of comes up in this passage. Uh, So, um, in fact, the previous passage. So verse 9 of chapter 5, it's not on the screen, but you can see it in your own Bible. says some interesting things about widows, just to cover that territory from last week. It says, let a widow be enrolled. And then in verse 11, it talks about the kind of widow who ought not to be enrolled. Uh, There's a list of names. Now, this talk of enrolments and list keeping in the church is, I think, a good opportunity to talk about church membership. I'll be clear, I don't think this passage is talking specifically about church membership. Uh, it's, it's obviously not, um, or certainly not the way that we practice it as a church. But the way we practice church membership is an application of some of these principles in this little passage. Since before I entered ministry, uh, I became aware that not every Christian is in favour of church membership as a principle. And I've, have, I've had conversations with some of you about this. There's a variety of reasons that people give, and, I, and I'll try to do them justice, uh, because I actually kind of get them. So people will say uh, they're not into church membership because it's not in the Bible, uh, because it feels opposed to some of what we've been looking at right here in, in 1 Timothy, where Paul insists on the ordering of church around family principles. So it doesn't feel relational enough to reflect the picture that we're given in Scripture. Keeping a list feels mechanical and heartless, not at all relational and organic. Uh, And it feels uh, not loving or exclusionary. If we're to write down the names of everybody in in attendance today, let's say about 70 people, well, you know, and say, well, these these 70 people are the people we have responsibility for, then that leaves something like, now I've lost track, but is it 8 billion people? Other names that don't make that list. Well, don't we also under Christ have some duty to uh, our neighbours and the world and the lost? Are we creating two tiers where in, uh, where in Christ there should be one? Because, you know, all are made in God's image. All are equal. And I will say, as I've already said, I have sympathy for every one of these arguments, even if in the end I don't think they ultimately stack up as an argument against the way we practice church membership. I'll come back to the first one, whether or not it's in the Bible. Or, or hopefully as I go, you will, see, um, you will see me applying some biblical principles to this. But first, let me acknowledge and address those last two arguments together, that church membership is not relational and not loving. Now, it might be something inside me. Uh, it might be something in our Western or Australian culture that I've inherited, but I tend to agree. It feels this way. 
But church membership doesn't feel relational. It doesn't feel particularly kind. It kind of feels the opposite. You know, reducing a person to the question of whether they're in or out. Or keeping a list of members up to date by either adding a name or taking it off the list. It feels like such a meagre way of reflecting real souls and real life journeys. Formalising a thing that's real and earthy and vital can sometimes feel uh, reductionistic. As I said, in the context of 1 Timothy 5, Paul isn't talking exactly about church membership the way we practice it. But I wonder if, you, if for you, it feels kind of the same. Uh, in that the church has a bunch of widows uh, in their immediate vicinity. People who, by definition, have experienced unspeakable grief and are now physically and economically vulnerable. And confronted with a list of widows, Paul is recommending drawing a line down the middle of the page and putting some on one side and some on the other, or leaving some off the list altogether. Well, it doesn't feel relational or loving, does it? But it is biblical. It's in the Bible. Paul is confronting here an unfortunate reality with what is actually wisdom and love. It is wisdom what Paul is recommending here. And again, I'm not actually going to go into the details of the first half of chapter 5 because we sort of did that last week. You can read it for yourself. But it is wisdom what Paul is doing here because he is confronting the reality that the church's resources are not limitless. So he is offering guidelines that make sure the people who are truly in need are provided for from the things that are available. And it is genuine love because it is channeling the help towards those who really need it. To give the same amount of money to people regardless of their need for money isn't really love. It's it's some sort of vague notion of equality that, that doesn't really stack up against the measure of love. But to give people according to their need... That's love. And that's part of the list keeping uh, in regards to widows. Is, it, widows is, um, is, is, is acknowledging their level of need. But there's another criteria on that list of widows, and it is related to their character. And, and Paul is suggesting, as I suggested last week, uh, that we should acknowledge widows whether or not they are truly Christians, whether they really do belong to the church. Uh, we look at a person's fruit, widow or otherwise, we look at their fruit in their life and say, well, is this person professing Christ and are, and are they uh, matching their life with that profession? Uh, in which case, yes, they are in our church and we have a strong obligation to that person. He isn't saying, by the way, that if they're not a Christian, then you shouldn't love or support them. He's just saying they're not on the list. Okay, we still have a duty to the poor and the vulnerable, the fatherless, the widows. That is, that is across the board in Scripture. But if they belong to the church and the body of Christ, we do have a heightened responsibility. And tell me if to you that feels heartless. But that, that, that's, that's the principle we've been given. So in the case of church membership, I'd make similar points. In the face of the church's limitations, it is both wise and loving to draw a circle around who our people are so that we can channel our attention and care towards them. Only in the case of church membership, it's not mainly about our financial limitations, but, uh, but our relational limitations, the, the shortage of time. I am commanded in the Bible to love my wife, my kids, my brothers and sisters in Christ, my neighbours and my enemies. 
But if I were to give as much of my time, prayers and money to my enemies as I do to my wife and children, well, I don't think that's how Christ expects us to apply those teachings. In fact, loving for your, love for your enemies is, is, under normal circumstances, quite a passive thing. Uh, you, you, do it in, you do it by avoiding them but forgiving them in your heart. You know, and maybe you live in closer proximity and you, have to, uh, you actually have to drum up a bit more energy to uh, be deliberately kind towards them. But, but you're not typically living in the same environment as your, as your enemies, in the same way you are with your wife and children. As a minister of the church, it is my duty, on the one hand, to teach and pastor my church, and on the other hand, to love and share the gospel with my community. Uh, is it to do these things equally, or is the balance tipped in one way or the other? And look, unless I get specific instruction from my church or my elders, then my understanding is that you get number one. And the rest is prioritised, but not at your expense. Now, granted uh, that every individual Christian uh, belongs to the whole body of Christ, is my duty and responsibility to a fellow Christian equal no matter what church they're attending? Or, you know, because there's, there's that good principle of equality in Christ and, you know, we're all brothers and sisters, we all are one, but is my duty to a Christian person who's not in attendance to our church equal to my duty to you, who is in my church, Christ's church that I've been appointed in? Well, I would say that my duty is to you more than others. My duty and responsibility is to those who have, you know, signed up, so to speak, to sit under my care. And Christians who belong to other churches, well, they get something less from me in terms of my attention and priority. In light of my limitations as a man and as far as I understand my role, you lot are clearly number one. So to simply say a thing or principle is not relational or not loving because it doesn't treat every scenario with exactly equivalent time and energy is not really fair. And and maybe that's not exactly what people are saying who say it's not relational or loving, uh, but we have to acknowledge some limitations, some some principles that we ought to be applying here. Um, But... It's worse than that. To suggest that giving different people different treatment is not loving grossly fails to grasp the, two, the true depths of what love really is. How God spells love out to us. Because God isn't limited in the way that we are limited. And yet he shows an order, a clear order in how he loves. And that might make you feel a bit uncomfortable. Maybe that's not what you were told. But it is what the Bible teaches. So... We've got John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the whole world. He gave his only son. Well, that tells us, yes, that God's universal love is extreme beyond belief. So don't let me diminish that. His love is for the world and everyone in it. Romans chapter 5 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son so yes this is a god who who loves even his enemies with that extreme sacrificial holding nothing back kind of love that he would give himself his son yes we read jesus's parables uh, that emma read for us before uh, where god is like the shepherd who would leave 99 sheep unattended to bring just one to safety so we have all this that shows us the full nature of God's love, and yet 
we also have an entire storyline in the Bible of God making all men and women in his own image in Genesis chapter 1. But throughout the Old Testament, he focuses his salvation plan on just one branch of the family tree. He does not treat every group equally throughout. To be clear, his salvation plan is ultimately, and he says his plan, is that ultimately for all families and nations to know him, but he puts that plan into practice by blessing one nation and one people. And through whom? Uh, Through that nation or people, he will then bless the others. And in the same pattern today, God gives his particular love and care to his elect, the ones he chose to make up his church. And again, his plan is still that all might come to him through the witness of his beloved church. But he demonstrates his love differently to the few so that the rest would join in. And so, um, in John chapter 13, when Jesus says to, to his disciples... As I have loved you, so you must love one another. He's speaking more from his own heart than from our limitations. He talks from his special and particular love for his disciples, telling them that they should similarly give special and particular love first to their brothers and sisters in Christ. Your command is to love one another, meaning not not actually everyone. Although he's not saying don't love everyone, but in that specific moment he's saying... Your solemn duty is to love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is your witness to the world because as you do that, people will look in and see uh, and, uh, and know God's love. So notice, notice, importantly, this isn't mainly built uh, based on the limitations of God's people. He's not actually mainly here now saying you can only love so many people well, so, so start here. That's true, but that's not his main point. He seems to base this order of things on his own practice, on God's own nature. It's theological and biblical to prioritise who you love. It's the true nature of love and relationship, to honour the true order of relationships and those dynamics. And so what's the upshot of all of this in terms of church membership? Uh, It's helpful for the church to know who is in and who is out. It is helpful. Uh, and there's a few ways of measuring who's in and who's out that, that don't require, require church membership and a list. So attendance, for example, is a good gauge. And some churches merely practice that. Uh, but then, well, you do have some very faithful and committed people who can't be as regular in attendance as they'd like because of things like health or distance or work commitments. And also, we're a church who welcomes and values the attendance of people who are not yet believers in Christ. And so attendance alone is not quite an adequate... Uh, gauge of you know who who is a believer uh, the church leadership will expect different levels of godliness from a person who is a christian than from one who isn't even though we welcome all to be in attendance and the church leadership is invited uh, by a christian member of the church to encourage and correct um sometimes so uh, i understand that if you're a member of the church then you have invited me to speak into your life um in ways that are sometimes difficult And that is in a way that is different from how I've been invited to speak into the life of someone who is not a member of the church because they haven't haven't invited me. They haven't acknowledged uh, uh, our church's um, duty uh, or obligation to them. 
Uh, we can measure it without, uh, without membership list as well by, uh, by looking at a person's level of involvement or service. Uh, and, and that is a pretty good, you know, I would say even in cases of people who aren't strictly members of our church, that actually just, that does feed into, you know, how I view a, a person here. Uh, one indicator of an inv- individual's commitment to the church and the church's reciprocal obligation to that person uh, is how they serve and volunteer. But again, there are those who don't volunteer as much as others, not because they're not committed, but just because of stage of life or, or other reasons. And there are opportunities for people who aren't necessarily yet a Christian to still serve and volunteer in the life of the church. So it's not a perfect gauge. And so none of these things are perfect, but I would suggest that church membership, while still not being perfect, uh, but that act of keeping a role, it is a helpful tool. It's got its shortcomings. It doesn't necessarily feel relational or warm. It doesn't account for the people who object to membership on principle, uh, even though they qualify in every other way. But when used well, uh, it's clear, it's helpful. Uh, it's useful. What do you need to do to be a member of the church? You need to profess that Christ is your Lord and Saviour. You need to have lead a life that at least reasonably reflects that. Uh, and you need to uh, agree to sign up to, to have that acknowledged. Uh, and, and typically we do that publicly. Uh, you would have seen that. Uh, if you sign up to be a member of a church, it is clear to me and the leadership that if you are in need, we have a clear obligation to try and meet your need. If you don't sign up, it doesn't mean that we won't feel obliged to help you in some way or we won't even try. Um, but, uh, but, it, but it is absolutely clear. Uh, it's also clear, if you're a member of the church, that if you are in error, either morally or theologically, then, then you have Im- invited me and others to, to speak to you and address those things. If you're not a church member, we still want to meet your needs. We will continue to humbly offer spiritual guidance, but I understand that you're free to take or leave all of the above. And you understand that too. And I think that's helpful, right? Isn't that helpful to, to just know where we stand? And in between membership and not membership, there's areas and individuals that are grey, sometimes more, sometimes less. We're willing and able to roll with that too. Like we're not, we're not going to actually be dogmatic. And I've talked an awful lot about church membership, but isn't it helpful at least once to, to talk about it in length? Is church membership biblical? I, I think it is a good application of biblical principles there is list keeping in the bible uh, there is a uh, a prior uh, an order of priority whether or not the way we practice church membership is the single best way of applying all this stuff that's a valid conversation but i hope you can see that the way we practice church membership reflects a genuine and generous attempt to answer each of these three things to apply the bible uh, in a way that is actually relational and genuinely loving And I'm not going to talk about it every single week in the way that I've spoken about it today. It's just, it came up. Uh, I I think the order of our love, I mentioned before, is clearly biblical. Clearly biblical. First, you love God. Then you love your spouse and your children. Even even if you're not married, you honour your hypothetical or your future spouse and family by by remaining pure for marriage. Uh, You love and honour your parents. You love your brothers and sisters in Christ next. You love every neighbour and you love even your enemies. But you don't express your love to your enemy the same way you show it to your wife. And you're not asked to. You're asked to make a clear priority. With your wife, you are one. With your enemy, you are not. But you're asked to forgive. 
Uh, As we discussed last week, these things are almost never mutually exclusive. Almost never. Loving God as number one in your life, 99 times out of 100 will introduce zero conflict or tension with your mutual obligation to love your family, your church, your neighbours, etc. Almost never. But where worlds collide, it is helpful to recognise where your priorities lie. I'm going to give you a yucky example of where worlds sometimes collide. I know a married Christian man who on a work trip had a drunken one-night stand. Obviously, the aftermath was messy in all kinds of directions. And the, and the lead-up was probably not a, a one-off. The, the, you know, missteps were made along the way. But one dimension of this man's guilt, because he was a Christian man with a conscience, is a Christian man with a conscience, one dimension of his guilt was he felt bad for how, not only for how he treated his own family, but also bad for how he treated this woman that he had used on a single night. He felt like he couldn't just discard her, in part because of a sense of obligation to her. But clearly his obligation to her was completely disordered. It, it had no place. And so in, in this weird, and like I say, multifaceted, uh, but in this weird tangle of obligation, trying to be respectful with the person that he cheated on his wife with, like that, the whole marriage was derailed. If he had have seen clearly early on, you've made a mistake, you've confronted your mistake, but you have zero obligation to this other woman, and that might seem cold and heartless, but there's, there's this collision of priorities, and you're... Your obligation is to your wife and your family and you be as cold and heartless as you need to be to discard this other person. That's actually what he should have done and he might still be married if he had of. So you can see how sometimes these things in a messy world and, and often because of our own sin but also because of the sin of others. Sometimes it's, un, it's not self-inflicted. You can see how sometimes these things run into conflict but under normal healthy circumstances uh, that shouldn't be the case. But it is helpful to have a clear vision of who our priority is primarily to. Inherited authority. Uh, we're going to go um, pretty quickly through this again. Um, th- this, this deserves a lot more time. Um, it says, Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honour. The Bible talks about slavery a bit. Uh, you will hear people uh, accuse the Bible of being pro-slavery because it doesn't really roundly condemn it. And in fact, we've got here a passage uh, where it says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants not escape, not um, you know, overthrow your rulers because they, they have no real authority over you, they, they oughtn't to own you because you are one with them in Christ, etc. But actually says, honour them and show respect to them. Regard your masters as worthy of all honour. I'll say this too. Sometimes uh, there are two Greek words in the New Testament for, uh, that are sometimes uh, translated as servant or slave. Uh, one of them uh, is the same word for deacons that we looked at uh, in chapter 2 or 3. Uh, it, it's about being servant-hearted, uh, making sacrifices for others. Uh, the other word is a word that is talking about actual slavery. 
Um, and that's the word that our English translation here has gone with and said bond servants. I think that is a confusing word for us. Does bond servant sound, you know, more serious to you than servant? Not to me, it sounds weird. Um, it, it, it's slave, is what it's talking about. Now, uh, in the first century world, slavery wasn't exactly always the way we picture it from uh, stories of, say, uh, the African-American slave trade uh, in America. Uh, there, were, um, uh, there were people who entered into slavery voluntarily because they got so deep in debt they needed some way out. And so their master was someone who could provide for them in exchange for uh, their service. There were people who would enter into it voluntarily. But it wasn't all, you know, just like... You know, th- that is almost like a, like a heightened version of a work contract. But it wasn't all that. And there is genuine ownership, which does seem upside down in terms of the way we view uh, the, the genuine um, dignity and equality of all people under Christ. And then there's passages like this that that seem to almost reinforce that relationship and that dynamic. But I'll say this, Christianity, more than any other movement, has overthrown slavery. Now you might say Christianity has overthrown slavery in spite of passages like this, but I'll, I'll suggest that's not the case. Christianity has overthrown slavery in places like in England and in America, Uh, where the anti-slave trade movement was driven mainly by Christians for Christian reasons, in spite of the fact that these nations were benefiting greatly through slavery. They were lining their own pockets by using and abusing people beneath them. And yet it was Christian people, in spite of passages like this in here, who went back to first principles that all men and women are created by God in His image. And under those first principles, slavery doesn't feel like it's got a place. Um, And so, you know, there's this first principle working its way down that has had the effect of overthrowing slavery from the bottom. In the case of actual slaves and people in, in the muck of this life, these principles, I would say, have had the effect of working their way up to overthrow slavery. And so, in the instance of a slave who is told to honour and respect his master, um, that is going to have the effect of, in some cases, winning over their master to Christ. Um, In fact, it's an unfortunate parallel in some ways to draw, uh, but Paul writes in other places about uh, how a wife, I spoke about this a couple of months ago, how a wife should respect her husband. And, And he says, even in the case of where you are a Christian woman and your husband is a non-Christian man, you are to submit to him as your husband. And in so doing, you will win his respect and you may even win him to Christ. And so we sort of come back to what I said at the start, that there is this sort of natural order, or in some cases an inherited order. And actually, even within that order... We ought to show respect. We ought to be under Christ even more willing, even more eager, even more sacrificial, even more open to vulnerability and danger in order to show respect where it's due and to honour others. And it is part of our witness to the world. It is part of our witness. Now, some people will look on that as foolishness and despise it. 
just as people looked on Christ and his sacrifice as a fool and despised him. But we are called to be foolish in the same way, for the same reasons that Christ was, so that we might win the world. I'm not in favour of slavery. Christ, Paul, not in favour of slavery. They are in favour of this, that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled, that he would be honoured. And sometimes that takes enormous sacrifice. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great love. We thank you uh, humbly even for this high calling uh, to honour you, uh, to respect you. And as we honour you, uh, to honour and, and do diligence and respect uh, to all those at every level under you. Father, help us to apply this wisely and lovingly. Help us to apply this for the sake of your name so that we would know uh, with your wisdom, uh, when we ought to step out of line and, and, and call out uh, injustice and, um, and what's wrong. But help us always to be willing in strength to face the consequences for our disobedience if that's what it comes down to. Help us more and more, though, to be people uh, who love generously and sacrificially and fearlessly uh, because we are owned and loved and secure in Christ. Amen.